Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Roy may be a lot of things, but shy isn't one of them. He never backs down from a good debate. This is The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com, Twitter at the Roy Green Show. Lots of reaction on Twitter, lots of reaction in emails to yesterday's interview that I uh, had with the Federal Minister of Health, Dr. Jane Philpott. And a lot of reaction to that. And we're going to play it back in the next hour. If you didn't hear it yesterday, you'll want to hear it. It was the minister's office who initiated the interview, and I had specific questions to ask. And you can decide for yourself whether we got answers and what that interview really was all about. Because what I heard the minister say time and again was, wonderful question, Roy. But then she didn't answer, which I pointed out to her. And I also read an email to the minister about a chronic pain patient. This is all about the opioids, right? And the chronic pain patients in this country being victimized by governments, federal and provincial, because they're made to look as though they're the problem in the so-called opioid crisis when they're not the problem. They are the victims. They are victims of government that instructs doctors or intimidates doctors to the point that the doctors reduce significantly the medication for their patients, so much so that their patients are not getting the kind of relief or any relief at all. Some are considering suicide. You've heard this. Now, in that email I read to the minister yesterday, from a 38-year-old woman, she mentions suicide. And after you hear me play back the interview with the minister, I'll be speaking with that 38-year-old woman who sent that email. Now back to the issue of terrorism and uh, the London attack. The last time I spoke with Dr. Christian Luprecht, professor of political science and studies at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the Donald Laurier Institute, was the uh, day after the Manchester attack. And here we are again, just two weeks later, uh, Dr. Luprecht talking about another vicious assault in London. Uh, I'll ask you the same question that I just asked the former commander of JTF2. Are you detecting a pattern? Are Islamist attacks on a steady pattern of increase, or is it coincidental? Well, I think in it's too small for us to draw that sort of inference. That the fact that the threat level has been severe for more than three years now in the United Kingdom uh, suggests that, uh, indeed, at least the risk pattern has not changed, and if anything, at least certainly elevated temporarily after the Manchester bombing uh, when the threat level was raised to critical. So in 
that sense, there's certainly a pattern on the risk side. Um, whether there's a pattern on the actual attack side, that then also depends how many of the foiled plots you found. Now, there's, of course, 18 foiled plots in the last year and a bit along the United Kingdom. Those are only the openly known plots. If you add to those plots that never surfaced because they were disrupted um, before they got to the media or before um, these individuals were in any way other able to risk the public, uh, now you start to get into numbers where you could say, yes, potentially there is a pattern here. But it, the means, of course, change among each of these attacks. So this is, while, yes, it's the third major terrorist attack in three months, this attack is different from what we saw um, in front of the parliament buildings, and it's different from what we saw in Manchester. And that makes it so difficult for security services uh, because uh, if, if there's not one consistent way of individuals uh, banding together and one consistent way of ha- carrying out these attacks. Are security services doing what they really should be doing, or are they being hampered by, in the, in the main by politicians who, as you pointed out the last time we spoke after the Manchester attack, you said their politicians are essentially interested in re-election, and so if they find a, a clever phrase that we'll all stand together and we will not fall, and we, this is what we want to believe, and this is what we do believe, and this is what our history says will in fact happen, but is it, do the security services have enough leeway to do what they need to be doing, or are the politicians holding them back? So, look, I think that's a really good question. This is an issue that came up in, in Germany, in the context of Berlin, where governments that tend to be more on the social democratic side, uh, oftentimes, especially law enforcement, doesn't necessarily feel that the government will have their back if they have to make difficult decisions that might then require a minister or a premier to step up and defend the decisions that uh, law enforcement made. Whereas I think Theresa May has uh, all along sent the message, and she did so, so again, but I mean, there's the famous quote that enough is enough. I think there's a clear signal to law enforcement and intelligence services that I will have your back in whatever decisions you're going to make. Because, of course, if services don't feel that the politicians will have their back um, and there's then blowback as a result of an arrest or a warrant that perhaps was issued on, uh, on, on questionable grounds or so, uh, then inherently security services will always um, err on the side of caution. And if they err on the side of caution, then that means they can't necessarily be as proactive as I think much of the population would expect them to um, after you have uh, as many deaths as the UK has had in three months from three major attacks. It's frustrating, extremely frustrating for people to hear, oh, we had that person or we had those people on our watch list, on our radar. We contacted them, but then we talked to them and they sort of slipped, if not off the radar, then down the scale of importance. It's frustrating for people to hear this, particularly when innocent people lose their lives. So when the Prime Minister of Britain says enough is enough, and if they have a specific number, and I've heard 3,000 in the UK that they have on a watch list that are potentially imminent terror threats, are we going to be returning to a time where internment becomes not only a possibility, but a reality where society says, look, you are too much of a threat so we're going to lock you up. So, look, I think you're asking a really interesting question. And this is really ultimately a question of where we can we push the bounds of what is legally possible in a rule of law democracy. 
if you think of this as concentric circles, in the center we have events that are clear terrorist events, um, such as what we just saw. Then we have events that we've said are like terrorism. So if you give money to someone or you give a weapon to someone and they carry out a terrorist attack. So those ones are easy. What becomes much more difficult are, for instance, administrative interventions. So we, we remove your passport, for instance, so you can't travel. Or other types of preemptive interventions, such as, for instance, you know that somebody might be up to with something with their car, so instead of, but you don't have enough evidence, so you pull them over and you try to find a reason to take their car off the road. And in Canada, we have this very innovative but controversial tool uh, that was expanded with Bill C-51 of uh, conditions of recognizance and peace bonds, where we essentially tell people, we think you're up to no good, but if you agree to the following conditions, then you can remain free. And these conditions can be anything from um, having your whereabouts monitored 24-7 to not going on the Internet, to not going a certain distance from your house, to not interacting with certain people. And this appears to have proven fairly successful. And that's the challenges that we run into, for instance, if you think about the, uh, the example that I always like to cite here is the Orlando shooting where somebody was clearly known repeatedly uh, under investigation for being a high risk, but there's no legal mechanism in the United States to try to place someone uh, like that under conditions that would likely inhibit that individual moving, um, preventing them from moving uh, from thought to action. And so I think what we will see different democracies wrestling with a lot more is, I mean, we're not going to have large-scale internment, but I think there's going to be a lot more experimentation legally. What sort of conditions uh, will the law allow us to impose on people who are high risk so as to make it very difficult for them to carry out their acts. And in this particular case, had we had conditions in place that would have not allowed those three individuals to associate, would no attack have been taking place? Difficult to say, but perhaps the attack would have not been uh, quite as severe in the consequences. Um, and if security forces only need to uh, train their weapons on one individual instead of three and trying to figure out who are the bad guys and who are the good guys, which is always the challenge, of course, when you have people out in the street with heavy arms that they make sure that they don't shoot the wrong people, mm -hmm. um, then that might have been at least one way to mitigate uh, some of the impact of this attack. I would imagine there, and, and I know this, I don't have to say I would imagine because we've heard the reports, there are people in this country now who are free to move around in our society, who are considered a clear threat to the peace of our society, who are considered a clear threat to participate or enact a, an act of terrorism. And these people are, are not, they're not stopped. They, they may be, there may be some roadblocks in front of them, but there's nothing really to stop them from committing such an act. Um, are we failing? I, I know this is part of what your, your previous answer, but are we failing before anything takes place? Can we, could we today, based on what we've seen in Europe and what the threat reality is globally, and particularly in Western democracies, could we preclude anything from happening in this country today? Can we preclude a likely event from happening by today taking some people off the street? So, look, people always make this out as a, as a black and white issue. And, and what I've lobbied for is we need a, need a much wider toolkit available to uh, intelligence and law enforcement services. And so you'll remember, uh, under the discussion of C-51, one of the most controversial elements is what's commonly known as disruption, 
what is uh, known in the bill as the threat mitigation mandate. Right. In which, so security services, law enforcement, intelligence can only do what we as a society legally no, I get that. enable them to do. No, I get that. So, so we need, as a society, have to have an open conversation about what sort of powers are we prepared to put in the hands of our security services. Do we have, in about, in a, Christian, in about 30 seconds, do we have the time for this conversation, or does there have to be decision-making taking place by the people we pay and pay well to make decisions to protect our society and say, this may not be what we personally or philosophically agree with, but we know it's necessary, so we're going to do it. In light of what we've seen after Manchester, in light of what we're seeing now after London, where these people were known, I would come back to the fact that the disruption mandate that we have in Canada, that all the people who criticize it so severely should think very carefully because that mandate has become integral in this country to preventing acts to be carried out um, uh, that, are, that are terrorist acts. And so I think this is precisely the sort of latitude with which we need to enable the people who are mandated with keeping us safe as individuals and as a society. I always appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much. Dr. Christian Luprecht from Queen's University and the Royal Military College. When we come back, we'll talk to Zara Premji. She's with Global News in Winnipeg, and she's in London. She was about 10 or 15 minutes away from where the terror attack took place last night. Stay with us.